He's Myron Weber. And he's Jeremy Thomas. And this is Mental Supermodels, the podcast where we explore the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling for problem solving and decision making. Mental supermodels are practical techniques that influence your mindset when approaching these complex problems and driving decisions. Welcome to episode 11. What have you got for us today, Jeremy? Well, you know, today we're finally moving into the managed stage of our six stage framework where the real execution begins for everything that we've decided is important, brings the greatest value, uh, and ultimately directly links to our team objectives and business goals. You know, one time I remember I was in a meeting and uh, I felt like people were just focused on go get the work done and they, they weren't really, really planning anything. So I just sort of uh, sarcastically said, more work, less planning. And about a third of the room realized I was joking. About a third of the room thought, that's great advice. Let's just get out there and work. And about a third of the room was aghast because they they actually agreed with me that we needed more planning, but thought that I was advocating the opposite. So uh, so are we ready for the more work, less planning transition here, Jeremy? Yeah, I, I think so. And it, it's a good point because we're not going to look at this through the lens of project management methodologies. We're not looking to do a lot of planning. We're actually really ready to execute. So we're going to look at mental models that do a couple of things. Because we really need to have the right mindset to battle the constant ad hoc requests and the shifting priorities that are trying to cause you to lose focus. And those two things that can support you when you're living life inside this tornado of execution are team trust and communication. Mm. Now, the reason trust is so important is because things won't always go as planned as we know. Mistakes yeah. are going to happen. Issues are going to come up, but it's that trust amongst the whole team that'll get you through it. And for communication, uh, I'm not just talking about you know, speaking clearly, keeping everyone up to date on activities. I'm basing it on reference points, which effectively establishes a mental model for me that enables everyone to stay on the same page. So establishing trust through communication using mental models to enhance that communication is the angle I'd like to, to look at today. And if we refer back to our boundary formula, which okay. is the purpose, constraints, activities, and outcomes, uh, those are the steps that guide us through a stage or a boundary. So if we start with the end in mind, which I like to do, what are we looking to achieve during the manage stage? Well, this is the stage uh, we're actually trying to deliver. Like you said, we're wanting to, to get work done, not just plan. We're actually trying to deliver the concepts and business cases or use cases that were created during the mapping stage. Basically, we want to deliver the solutions that directly achieve those business cases. Now, so that's our, that's our outcome we're looking at. So if we go back to the beginning of the boundary formula, the purpose is to guide and get the best, most efficient and effective work out of everyone that's involved in what we're doing. Knowing that you'll encounter several constraints, such as ad hoc requests and changing priorities. So the activities we want to focus on are 
building and maintaining relationships and keeping everyone on the same page, which I have a simple practical mental model that I use during this stage, but Myron, I'd like to hear what you're thinking about. I think that you're hitting on a really important topic in how teams function, how organizations function. And I like the fact that as we move out of the strategy pillar and into the execution pillar to this managed stage, you're not focusing on, and here's how to build a Gantt chart, right? Or those <laughs> kinds of, of mechanics of, of project management. There's yeah. an entire project management institute out there that uh, that focuses on that. And that's not really what we're about. So in terms of how to approach the management of initiatives and programs toward achieving objectives, the team aspect or the, the culture, the communication, the trust, those things that you're talking about, I think are all really critical. I guess I would add one more thing in there, which is when we when we think about communication, there are some, some very important things about how we communicate or, you know, systems of communication, that sort of thing. But it's also very important to remember that we are always communicating non-verbally as well as verbally. Eye contact, posture, tone of voice, there's so many subtleties in, in communication. And one of the one of the models that I've talked about in an earlier episode, I actually don't remember which one, but I can uh, put a link in the show notes uh, back to that, is the, the work of uh, psychiatrist Murray Bowen in terms of looking at how human systems function and one of the great drivers of system functioning being anxiety. If people are anxious, their brains don't work as well. And if they're calm and in a not anxious state, then people think more clearly and they interact more productively. So I'll just throw that out there as one additional thing that's important in, in how the organization, how the system functions. So communication and trust also requires sort of keeping people in a state of less anxiety when possible rather than more anxiety. All right. Sounds good. I want to kind of just kind of mention the mental model that that I think about, and then maybe we can combine things together here. Uh, you know, when I'm in the the managed stage, I think about, and I talk, I mentioned before about reference points. So to me, not looking at methodologies, I'm looking at mentally what can I be thinking about, and I think about dates, milestones, deliverables, tasks, issues, decisions. Now, not really thinking about that from a template standpoint, but from a way of thinking as you're executing and working through things and it's a way to communicate. So I'm just going to briefly you, set my, you, you ran through that list really fast. Just say it one okay. more time. Dates, milestones, deliverables, tasks, issues, decisions. Got it. Thank so you. At any point in time, you should be able to ask anyone on a, on a team what the DMDs and TIDs are. That's what I would say. And regardless of the tools or templates that you're using, they should be able to quickly determine these key things. And to me, that's a mental model that provides like an anchor. If somebody's lost, because we know how you can get caught up in a tornado here during this stage. If you're lost and you're not really sure what's going on, you can think, okay, let me find out the DMDs and TIDs. And that's kind of a, a referenceable anchor point that can get you back on track. 
And the reason I bring that up is because it is a part of communication and communication ultimately builds trust. So, cause people are lost a lot of times during the execution and just a way to anchor everyone is, okay, what are the DMDs and TIDs? And at least figure those out because there's going to be a lot of other things going on. But if you can, for a specific initiative, just come back and answer those six things, then it can at least help ground everyone from a communication standpoint so that everybody's on the same page again. And if everyone feels like when I'm lost, I can come back to this, then that's going to build a level of trust that, you know, at least everybody can, can feel more comfortable with what's happening. So I just wanted to set that one up. That's a mental model that I'd like to use and then see where you, where you can take it from there. Let me springboard from that into, I guess this is a bit of a question or, or something I'd like for you to react to. I was an architect, software architect in a situation where I was neither the owner of the project, nor was I the programmer doing the work. I was the architect of the solution. And I got a lot of pushback at one point when I uh, told the executives and the project management group that I really thought they needed a programmer's bill of rights on their project. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't too happy to hear that. But the situation was simply that management was coming up with arbitrary schedules and handing them to programmers and saying, you need to hit this, right? So in terms of your dates, milestones, and deliverables, part of what you just said, in the context of trust and communication, I'm curious, kind of how, how do you see that balance between uh, management needing to make decisions and, and there certainly is hierarchy that exists in companies for, for good reasons. And yet it, it can often get to that point of arbitrary dates and deadlines being handed to people who had no say in whether that was realistic or not. How do you see that impacting this? I've seen it too, where there will be arbitrary deadlines set for something. And it's probably not arbitrary to the person making the request because they're wanting to achieve something without regard of reality, but they know that they want to hit a certain deadline for a, a business or political purpose. So what I find is one of the, the real defining factors in that situation is quality. And I think that that's what ends up proving, uh, proving out the, the time frame concept on if it was realistic or not is what level of quality you get. And this might be where uh, maybe it's a trial and error because somebody's going to throw out an, an arbitrary timeline and you'll hit it, but the quality might be low, but you hit that timeline. And now if their response is, this isn't exactly what I wanted, you say, well, I'm going to need this amount of time to get you what you want. Maybe that is a trial and error. At some point, I think that you would define, and I'm speaking idealistically here, I know things are complex, but idealistically, after some iterations on this, now you start building the, a level of trust and communication where if you say something's going to take X amount of time in order to deliver X quality, they're going to believe you because they will have seen what you delivered in less time and they will have seen what you've delivered in the amount of time you suggested. And now they can judge the quality of that and say, well, then you're probably right. Again, that's idealistic, but I think that there's this iteration that you have to go through to where they have to see 
because they might be testing to see what can they really get out of you in a short period of time. But ultimately it'll come back to what's the level of quality that's being delivered in this time frame versus that time frame. Does that? Yeah. And you know what this, uh, as I listen to you talk through that, it, there's so much that's coming back to me from prior episodes, even just in uh, the previous episode we did about John Boyd and the Uda loop. Uh, and for anyone who hasn't l- listened to that, the, the Uda loop is the four stages of observe, orient, decide, act. But Boyd treated the decide and act as a hypothesis and a test of that hypothesis. And, and why I'm bringing that back now is that if, if communication only flows one direction from management to staff, here's, your, here's the work to be done, here's your deadline, and there's no feedback loop, we're not treating these things as hypotheses to test, it's just direction, get it done. We're not observing and orienting on the basis of what we see as a result of that. That's a huge mistake. That gets at the quality you're talking about. There will be no quality improvement coming out of these ongoing activities. It's just more work, less planning, as opposed to uh, actually using the tools of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting as a way to test hypotheses and get better. So continuous improvement sometimes becomes a buzzword, but when we put it in this context, the OODA loop and many of the other things that we've talked about on previous episodes really instill continuous improvement in the organization if they're applied. Yeah, and and I really love hypotheses and testing. I think that that can be applied to a lot of things. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that that is an important way to communicate that it's not just about, I give direction, you go do. That doesn't really work. It should be, I have a hypothesis, you go test. Even in the scenario you brought up, the hypothesis is you can actually complete the work in this amount of time that I'm expecting. It's It sounds like a directive and it might have been intended to be that at the time, but in reality, it's a hypothesis. I think that you can do this work in this amount of time. And then you go test that hypothesis by attempting to complete the work in that amount of time. And the result is going to be some level of output that now comes back to the requester and he can now make an adjustment and say, okay, this is good or this isn't good. Let me readjust my hypothesis and say, you might need this amount of time to go do it. So just coming back to the hypotheses and testing as a way to think about communication uh, is something that I think is, is pretty useful. So when people can think about it as not just giving specific directions or providing specific answers, if it's always seen as a hypothesis that you need to go test, I think that that helps the communication process. So there's a, a, big topic that I think we have to address as we talk about these things, and and that is culture. Uh, there's a saying, and I don't know where I heard it, but I love it, it uh, culture eats policy for breakfast. <laughs> and so you can set up whatever policies about how this should be, whether that's, you know, the programmer's bill of rights, or whether that is how we hand down uh, tasks, or the, uh, the, the DMDs and TIDs and all of this stuff. But the culture is going to have a huge impact on what actually happens. And let me propose a definition of culture, which 
really, I think, becomes a mental model because it addresses so many components. As far as I know, I made this up. It's original to me. If I got it from someone else, sorry for not giving credit. Mm -hmm. But the way that I define culture is the sum of all the sincerely held beliefs and values of all the people in the system weighted by each person's influence. Right. So it's the sum of the sincerely held beliefs and values of every person in this system weighted by each person's influence. And if we unpack that, the influence, let's unpack first the, the influence part, right? Influence can be formal or informal. So in most cases, you know, the, the CEO, the boss is going to have more influence than the staff, but based on experience, knowledge, uh, charisma, whatever it would be, there are people in the organization who have a lot of influence, even if they don't have the title, right? So, uh, and there's more I want to say about it, but first, Jeremy, any reaction to that definition, any, any gaps or anything you would add to that? No, I, I love the definition of it. And I think it's important to think about not in terms of the hierarchy, because you did mention, you know, you touched on that kind of the hierarchy aspect of it, but it's not about a hierarchy. It's not about an org chart. It's, it's, a, it's a mental model, a way of thinking about the culture so that you can kind of, you know, maybe release yourself from thinking that you don't have influence if you're not at the top of the organization, that you can influence the culture um, because it's just a way of thinking. You just need to, to weight yourself, <laughs> increase your weighting by yeah. increasing your influence. Yeah. And there are a couple things for leaders, whether they be executives, bosses, whatever the, uh, the role specifically is, but for leaders in organizations, I think there are a couple of very important things to remember about culture and things that I've seen and heard folks get really wrong in a few cases. Uh, for a CEO to stand up in front of an all hands meeting of all the employees in the company and say, our culture is, and then make some sort of a pronouncement. Now, if that leader is doing that to try to influence the culture in the way that you just said, they're trying to put something out there to influence people in, in the organization toward a certain culture, um, that's great. That, that, that is totally appropriate if that's what they understand. If what they think is by pronouncing I'm the boss and I'm going to say what our culture is, that's unrealistic and wrong and actually undermines the culture. Because as I said, the culture is the sum of all the sincerely held beliefs and values of all the people in the system. So the CEO cannot say what the culture is. He can, he or she can over time by their actions, their words, by who they hire, by what policies and practices they put in place, they can construct a culture, they can influence the culture, they cannot dictate the culture. So that's really important to remember. Yeah, I think it's, it is kind of what you're talking about. It's more about the masses that individually, they might have a low amount of weight, but as a group, as a mass, they the, the sum of them actually carries a lot of weight. So the CEO might have a certain idea of what the culture should be, but if 75% of the organization thinks differently, that's what the culture is going to be because they're, they're, the sum of their weight is going to really direct what, what the culture is and ultimately how the communication and the trust and everything works within the organization. Yeah. Now, the second way in which the way leaders talk about culture 
can be very detrimental is when they actually say something that's just way off the mark. So here's an example and something I've actually seen and heard. A CEO gets up in front of the group and says, we have a culture of honesty and transparency. Well, what if that's not true? What if he's saying that? And he even believes that that's a good thing to have a culture of honesty and transparency, but he himself is not always honest and transparent. And the other leaders in the organization are not always honest and transparent. What he's really just said is we have a culture where we lie about being honest, right? Because that is the sincerely held belief and value that he has. He may value honesty, but he's lying about saying that we have that. So he's actually undermining the culture that he's saying exists there. And I think it's very important for leaders to be careful with their words when they're thinking about culture and how to influence culture or the fact that they're always influencing culture in everything that they're doing because their sincerely held beliefs and values are what matters for culture, not what they pay lip service to. Now, I, I realize I'm kind of taking us far afield from the original topic of how to manage, how to work through the manage stage and, and trust and communication. So I think the things I'm talking about with culture are relevant and the idea that culture eats policy for breakfast. But I want to make sure that that I'm not taking us off track and that this all ties back to, to kind of where you were going with the manage stage. Do you feel like this is helpful and fits? No, I, I think it fits because we had talked about uh, establishing trust through communication using mental models to enhance that communication. And that's the angle that we wanted to look at. And you know, we know that the outcome from this stage is to drive successful initiatives is what we want to do. So if we talk about the kind of the two mental models that we brought up, yours being culture, I think that that the importance of the focus on culture really leans towards building trust. So of course, we're wanting to establish trust through communication. I think the culture is an aspect of building the trust. And I think that that's important. If I, if I look at the mental model that I brought up the dates, milestones, deliverables, tasks, issues, decisions. That's pr more of a tactical approach to this, to this stage to where you can, you're still, you're tactically communicating with the team and through this effective communication through these reference points, you're building trust. So I think actually both of these combined are both trying to build trust through a certain level of communication, one at the cultural perspective, because uh, because the masses are going to win ultimately what the culture is, and it's either a culture of trust or a culture of no trust. So that's going to be important. And then tactically, we could get down to these DMDs and TIDs. So I think the combination of both are are good mental models to use during the this execution, the managed stage. Yeah. And I'll add a third one in, which is what I mentioned at the outset, which is anxiety and helping the group manage its anxiety. And I'll give an example, uh, a project that I was working on years ago, a software project, as I uh, always bring up those examples, but we're having a, having a performance issue, couldn't get the software optimized to run quickly enough. And it was, there was a lot of anxiety over this problem. And simply by saying in the room with all the people there, as they were looking at me as the architect, 
how are we going to solve this problem? And I said, I have no idea how we're going to solve this problem, but I know that it's a solvable problem. And that if we just work through a systematic problem solving process, we will solve it. Now, I actually wasn't a hundred percent sure that was true, but I was sort of like 90% sure that was true. And it turned out to be true. And by just putting that out there of being honest about the fact that I didn't know the solution, but that I was confident if we worked through a systematic problem solving process, we would find it. That got everyone focused. That lowered everybody's anxiety. It got them to stop thinking about all the other things that we didn't know or what wasn't working and focus on a systematic problem solving approach. So a simple example of how from a leadership perspective, one person can change the functioning of a system by simply getting everyone focused on a mental model. Here's our systematic problem solving approach and lowering that anxiety level so that everyone can think more clearly. It really is true. It's not just about the, the mental model of how to solve a problem. It's also getting everyone's brain functioning better by lowering their anxiety. Yeah, really great point because I always use the term working inside of a tornado because it's, there is a lot of anxiety. And if everyone feels like things are, everything's, um, you have a lot of team members that like to just wing it and they don't have a systematic approach. And anytime you feel like things are really loose in the way that they're working, there's a lot of ambiguity. And we've talked before about how I love ambiguity, but if there's a lot of ambiguity and looseness, then that really raises the anxiety level. And I think bringing a mental model into it brings a systematic approach that makes everyone feel more comfortable. It grounds people. That's why I like the DMDs and TIDs because it is a reference point that at least grounds people and makes them feel like even when they're in the tornado and anxiety levels get high, they have something to come back to. And that's the systematic approach that you're talking about because you can get off track. That's, that's natural, but you need something that guides you back. It guides everyone back to the same way of thinking. And I think that's why mental models are important because it is a way to guide everyone back to the same way of thinking that at least makes the chaos feel like it's a little bit controlled. Nice. I like it. And I guess uh, that probably wraps up the way that we're uh, thinking about the managed stage, because again, we're trying to deliver the solutions that we, that we produced in our mapping stage and we want to keep everyone grounded. As we continue through the rest of the execution pillar, there certainly will be things related to the management of the initiatives that we'll touch on. But as I said before, I think it's good that we're, that we're talking about how the system functions and, and not specific templates, documents, or tools, because there are so many of those out there for project management. And all of them can work well. I, well, I can't say all of them, but many of them can work well uh, or can work really poorly depending on the, the culture, the trust, the communication, and the anxiety. So I think we've hit on some really important topics. I agree. I agree. And we'll, we'll take this uh, the, the, in, throughout the rest of our framework. We'll get into the validate stage and ultimately the measure stage. But I think this is it's important to talk about the manage because this is where a lot of anxiety happens and trust and communication are important. So uh, hopefully we've brought up a few mental models here that are, that, that helps everyone get through this stage. Well, I will post the show notes at mentalsupermodels.com slash 11. 
and folks can go there as well and check out the rest of the site. We've got Jeremy's article about the six-stage strategy to execution model and also the links to how folks can reach our LinkedIn profiles to connect with me and Jeremy. So we look forward to getting to know folks. Excellent. Good conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. See you next time.